everyone, and welcome back for our, another episode of Mangum Reads. We are finally, after, Sarah, how many parts are we on now? I always lose track. I don't know, it's quarantine time, so it doesn't are, mean anything. After many five. parts, <laughs> probably part five, yeah, uh, are finishing off Naomi Novik's Spinning Silver. We have gone through the plot, we've gone through our inevitable rewrite of how we think we could make the story better, and now we're kind of going through the last little bits of things that we found interesting over the course of the story. So, starting us off, BJ, you mentioned that you wanted to address a few things of Judaism. Yeah, um, so there are just a couple of things that I feel like if you weren't either very familiar with the Bible or and or Judaism that, like, would be fairly well missed. Um, and I felt like, given, given that that is a residence that, that I sort of take up in, I, I can um, add that to... What an overly uh, complex way of saying I'm Jewish. Well, yeah, but uh, like, uh, but I'm also familiar with like some portions of the Bible, and one actually happened to be very convenient to a to my bar mitzvah portion, and so like I know hmm. it a little bit better. Okay, um, what you got? So uh, one of the so in specific that there uh, was a comment when uh, Miriam is talking to uh, her father uh, about the Winter Kingdom. And basically, like, all the things that she had done to help them and why she wanted to save the Winter Kingdom. And her father asks her, are there even ten righteous men among Mm -hmm. them? Um, And this is a very, very, very specific reference to a story uh, early on in the Bible when Abraham is pleading, arguing, it sort of depends on your exact interpretation, with God about uh, destroying a certain city and maybe rescuing a family member and his wife that didn't quite make it out from from this city um and basically starts out with like are you know if there are this many righteous men like will you spare the city and god says yes but like there aren't so no um and and so this is a, a specific reference to uh i believe god destroying uh sodom yeah, and we get into sort of like God and Abraham having like contract negotiations at that at that point, yes. right? <laughs> yes, and it's very funny because yeah. it's like, all right, well, if it isn't seventy, how about sixty? Okay, well, what about fifty? And then like they work their way down to ten, and so my presumption is like this is kind of this is the reference that that she was making mm-hmm. here, um, where it's just like, are there even ten people? Uh, 10 righteous men or righteous people in this winter kingdom that you think they, they're worth saving. Yeah. And I, you know, her in that scene, her response is, well, I know there are three, right. which I thought was like, which that, is another that whole scene was like really quite powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's a really good scene. And three is also like a very, um, mm-hmm. another specific Jewish number. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Basically, there are certain prayers that you need three people and certain prayers that you need 10 people. And that's sort of like the, uh, I think the 70 is uh, the number of judges that sat on the high court oh, or something. And that's mm-hmm. uh, maybe where that number came from, even though it would have predated the discussion or postdated the, the discussion that Abraham had. Mm-hmm. Anyway, apart from mm-hmm. that, um, so I my presumption is that is also why there's like this jump from 10 to 3 and why 3 is so very important. Mm-hmm. I often forget how murderous the Old Testament that God is. Because I'm remembering all the, I'm remembering several scenes over the course of where God is directing his chosen follower to either bring about or directly himself cause the death of a neighboring people. And yeah, it's a longer list than I think I've really thought about before. Yeah. Um, people talk about sort of the 
the fire and brimstone god of the old testament and the new like we love everybody new testament (laughs) it's not completely wrong or right in either accounts i would say but um there's a little bit more you do bad things and i will punish you in the old testament yeah right um Sarah, you mentioning that one scene. Oh, you guys mentioning that one scene of being particularly powerful between Miriam and her grandfather. Really, of the back, I like the first half of the book more than I like the back mm-hmm. half. But that scene really is a standout as being a very powerful moment. And also the mirroring scene that Arena has with her dad, where they finally meet on equal terms for really the kind of the first time ever. This is some, though. I really think the second half of the story is weaker for a variety of reasons. Stepan being a key character <laughs> in various parts, being part of that, um, as we've said before. Those are very strong mm-hmm. moments because it's. From where they started, it's a really a profound moment of accomplishment for the two of them. And also meeting with people that they've aimed to learn from or aspire to, but on a much more equal playing field. Yeah. Yeah. And BJ, I want to go um, back to you in a second about um, more things about a sort of Judaism that you have noticed in the novel. But I would like, Spencer, can you just, because I feel the same way about the second half of the novel to the first half of the novel. novel. Um, Stepping aside, are there other specific things that made you feel like the second half was weaker? Uh, it's partly the structure that we mentioned before, of where I loved the three-focus structure of this, each being you know, equal sides of a triangle that was building the whole story, mirroring each other in their own way. That worked very well in the first half of this book. And then once you reached about the midway point, it opened up. And suddenly we've got Stepan, we've got the babushka, the, the nursemaid, we've got the czar, some of which work better than others, but all of which distract from what I was really interested in how it was going to be built in terms of the structure. Mm-hmm. So that's part of it. Um, also, you know, this often happens inevitably in fantasy stories, but the scope started to get a lot bigger too, which I guess ties into the three perspectives as well. And so things started to become a little bit more jumbled. Mm-hmm. I think we've talked about before that, particularly in the back half, we started getting those mid-chapter breaks that were often entirely unnecessary or were just distracting from the flow of what you were building up. Um, so I think most of my problems with the back half end up being not a certain degree point of view, but also structural mm-hmm. concerns too. How about you? Um, I would also say that like, and, and these are all again related, but there's just like so, and we have talked about this on our podcast within a podcast um, and how this happens within Harry Potter books, um, but there's just so much plot packed in to the last like quarter of this novel that you're like, well, wait a second, what, what, <laughs> wait, where have we gone here? Um, which is part of the reason mm-hmm. why I had to read the book the whole book twice and then the last quarter or so um, again a couple more times to just get my head around like what had happened. Yeah. yeah. Well, one thing I, I think we also talked about that I liked in the first part was there were so many moments of where we were spending a fair amount of time building to a climax of a character's story and then continuing on afterwards. Mm-hmm. But they had like, even though they were coming relatively quickly, they still had like 80 pages of build up before they yeah. happened. And then once we get to the back half of the story, we'll get like four and 20 pages. We're, okay, like you said, there's just no time to process it. There's no time to appreciate the level of accomplishment that's going into it. I mean, we're seeing incredibly powerful moments of where a character is bringing magic into the real world, and it kind of gets just brushed aside in the rush to get us to where the plot wants to mm-hmm. resolve. And, I and think, that's a shame. Yeah, and I think that the how the characters finish, because like the, the entrance of each of the characters is uh, brought in, uh, and Sarah, you might 
have have a better refinement for this but sound kind of like you're carrying yarn or something like that mm-hmm. like they're they're woven into the story and they don't start at the same point and mm-hmm. at the end they kind of all sort of abruptly end at the same point mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it isn't like because essentially each of the stories that are being told ends at a different spot um or could be ended at a different spot and not sort of tied into a neat twist at like the very 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 end yeah i think that's true there could have been more like kind of ebb and flow in in where these characters actually end up and then who we continue to follow right Mm -hmm. yeah and and so like i mean we sort of get that like arena's uh story ends first a little bit um but like she's then a little bit tied up into everybody else. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, but you could have just ended her her story. Like, it had a perfectly fine ending. Like, there didn't need to be, like, an extra little bit to say that, like, oh, I didn't forget about her because my ending is, like, perfectly nice and twisted all together <laughs> at the end, and they all end at, you know, the same happy point, yeah. basically. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's a fair point. And I hadn't, I hadn't really thought about the ways that characters like Arena just continue to drag on in ways that they is just clutter. <laughs> like it's not, it's not useful. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's true. That even keep her involved in the story. We've got one pretty extensive part where she just kind of walks around a snow landscape and looks around for for a long period. <laughs> uh, it, her purpose is to be there to just randomly be available to grab the MacGuffin and plant the MacGuffin. Um, but it. Yeah, it feels an inartful way of continuing to keep her part of the story when, no, she really should just be in the ivory tower overseeing her mm-hmm. kingdom. That's kind of her point now. Yeah. Um, so, BJ, I'm sorry to take us to have taken us off oh, on no this worries. tangent, um, but um, I thought it was yeah, important. Well, they're all sort of, they are, it is, I, you know, I think it was, it's worthwhile. And, and I think it might be worthwhile discussing a little bit more because I think it's important, like in all aspects of the book, as we talk about the characters mm-hmm. as i assume we're probably going to get into in a little bit and magic mm-hmm. um the other major thing that um i was going to bring up is the the thing about threes being very important and then hmm. sort of coming out in the beginning and the end and um the conversion process to judaism um basically models itself after uh i believe ruth converting to Ju- judaism um, and eventually siring kings, and there's that whole story there. But um, her mother-in-law, when she says, like, I want to come with you and help you out um, after some things happen, uh, she her mother-in-law basically says no three times, and then after she kind of insists, she's then accepted, and, and that's sort of taken as the... Mm. Uh, way to to convert to judaism is is you like you have to ask three times and like at the third time of asking like it's accepted um and people are there's sort of like a somewhat of a dissuasion like are you sure you really want to do this um and so i think that that to me was a better mirror at the back end for uh the lord of the staric you know coming back and and uh basically dealing with her throughout the book and then coming back in the end and presumably courting her and, and uh, marrying her on her own terms. Mirroring mm-hmm. at the beginning, her him having three requests of her that she fulfills. Interesting. It, it, uh, sorry, I'm just pondering now. I need to actually ask my aunt whether she went through a similar thing because I assume that she did, but I've never really, really talked with her about it. So it's probably less of a... There, there are different... Uh, 
requirements and things depending on the i'll say denomination as well as like how dissuasive like anybody would be etc etc but there is sort of that encapsulated thought Mm. into the whole process that it shouldn't be something whimsical right whether it's a a mere formality or an extensive endeavor eh, i'm sure that varies yeah um so so those were the two main ones i think that there were others but now that we're more than a month out of my or (laughs) Quite a, quite a bit more than a month out of my initial oh. reading, and I'm looking at like the notes that I made and stuff like that. Those those were the two two big mm-hmm. ones. Gotcha. Well, it, it's an interesting novel in terms of very accurately mirroring what would been what was the historical experience of Jews in the that kind of borders of Russia um, part of the world, of where at least for a period of history those were a very heavily Jewish populated region because they were vaguely more tolerant than the areas in the West they'd been fleeing from. Uh, that kind of, you know, ended in the late 1800s, but it very much, our book is very much set in that kind of fiddler on the roof uh, setting of the world with everybody pondering when that's going to eventually come to an end. And one of the things I thought was really interesting in in this book in terms of that sort of social acceptance or non-acceptance was the, the insight that we get between sort of village and town or regional capital life mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. and so like miriam's family in the village that they start in is like one thing and we have like a very um hmm, distrustful uh <laughs> put it mildly uh mostly yeah, think- christian population but when you get into visnia proper you know we have the sort of jewish quarter which is doing its own I mean, that's that's fraught in all kinds of other ways, um, but is a very different system um, and like a very actually mm-hmm. like uh, d- legally mandated system. Yeah. And so I would say that the other side of it is like once there's enough of a population, mm-hmm. the useful and uh, usefulness of the of the Jews basically as money lenders and craftsmen is more tolerated than a single money lender. And yeah. so while the feelings might be somewhat similar, like because there's enough, like there's a larger population mm-hmm. and like there, there might be a little bit less disparity between the populations. Like it, it's not as weird that people can read and yeah. things like that. Um, so there is, there's an othering, but it's not as large a gap. It almost seems like in the city of Viznia in particular, part of the reason the Jewish population is more tolerated is that there is a greater semblance of control over them. Uh, that within the ghetto, they are absol- they maintain a certain degree of independence, but they are boxed in. Mm-hmm. There are walls built around them that the grandfather reflects aren't really for their protection. That they're, It's meant to be a physical barrier and block on where they are and where they can be, and so that everyone kind of always knows where they are. The guards that are being posted out there aren't their own. They are those of the city. Now, it's a situation of where the... Um, I forget the title of the ruler of Viznia. Arena's dad. Uh, he's a, I think he's a boyar. Or no, he's a duke? Duke of Viznia, I think that's yeah, what it is. I think duke, mm-hmm. and then they have boyars. No, he, he's, he's a, for this setting, a remarkably tolerant individual who's been very willing to work with the Jewish community. But even though it's in a city which is more tolerant, even though it's in an area where they can maintain a certain degree of their own laws and protections... It's all still done very cloak and dagger. That mm-hmm. no one goes to talk with them individually. No one goes to talk with them openly. No one meets in a neutral place. Um, 
even if they're willing to do business with you, it has to be hidden. And that's in a somewhat more tolerant setting, which kind of, again, sets just how it was a very interesting and dangerous business decision for um, Miriam's dad to decide, I'm going to go into parts unknown and start to serve as a moneylender. You can see why they kind of adopted a mentality of constantly being under siege when, by comparison, the only safe place they have is a place that is almost literally under siege at all times. And can you, do we know exactly why he went to that village? It seems like he was kind of marketing it to the grandfather, or his father-in-law, I suppose, as being kind of, these are untapped lands. These are whole markets that have never been lent to before, and I'm going to open them up with the investment you're giving me. I would guess, like, the if this were more true to life, it would be somewhere that is within traveling distance of his family, Mm -hmm. and traveling distance of her family, and so it was like a compromise. Yeah, um, we don't we don't see that though. Yeah, we don't yeah, really but... get any any indication of his family at all. Um, but I think that right. might that might be true. And the reason that I ask is, you know, there is clearly some some commerce going on in this village, but it seems to mostly be composed of subsistence farmers, right? Uh, which seems and... like a real nutty place to <laughs> set up your money lending business. <laughs> Right. And I guess that's why I sort of made some assumptions that, like, they seem to be on essentially a high road of sorts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and there seems to be goods traveling through, some stuff being shipped to Visnia and back. Um, basically, people, like, can purchase, like, goods from Visnia at, like, reasonable rates, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and, and we see through Miriam that it could eventually lead to a very successful trade kind of connection. She's pondering between trying to save her life from various ice demons and convert <laughs> their convert you know gold into silver and all back and forth. Um, she also is plotting various initiatives that could be create permanent trade agreements between her air, her region and Visnea, which could be exceptionally profitable in moving goods. So someone with ambition could make a hell of a profit off this. It's just from everything we see of him, Miriam's dad is just not that guy. Yeah. yeah. And I would also say for this area, like it'd be incredibly uncommon to have a family of Jews somewhere. Um, just like, hmm? you know, I, I, was, I was agreeing with you. Yeah. I mean, like it happened once in a blue moon for various reasons mm-hmm. in the U.S., but like even in the U.S., it was um, impressively uncommon. I think uh, my step father's uh grandfather was like one of the like one of the stories where like somebody ended up in the like the middle of nowhere for (laughs) weird reasons yeah um (laughs) as like the only jewish family in not quite a state but close to um and ends up moving back for for essentially those reasons because like first of all if you're marrying within your faith and then you know people not always liking jews for various reasons Mm -hmm. um it's interesting it's interesting, too, in this book to see, I was kind of, you know, criticizing in some ways the Visnian association with Jews, but it's also interesting to see the level of, because of a much more shared atmosphere and much more willing to do business, the much greater amount of knowledge the Visnians have about the Jewish community and their customs and working with them than we see in um, uh, Miriam's village. Like, when Wanda first interacts with Miriam and, and Miriam and her family, she's convinced that they're sorcerers. <laughs> That uh, the fact that they can do math, the fact that they sing and chant various things they can't understand, she's just absolutely certain they're practicing black magic. 
in part because that's basically been the sole story she's ever really heard about Jews growing up. Uh, I mean, our book opens with that kind of Rumpelstiltskin story and being and pointing out that it's a stand-in for you know being Jewish in a, in a world that's not tolerant mm-hmm. of you. Uh, and from what we can see in Miriam's Village, that's kind of the norm that they're living with, as compared to a somewhat more accommodating, or at least I'll say tolerant, atmosphere in Visnea. Yeah, and I like I would say that's a general thing that seems to be true. I mean, when people aren't exposed to other cultures, sure. um, and it's just like a thing that happens i mean one of uh my aunt my uncle's wife had an interaction like that at like university of maryland and this would have been in the 60s and it was just like wait what you've you've never met a jewish person before and you thought what oh okay (laughs) no so anyway well and it is also a kind of interesting thing like if you are the the one family in that is stand out in some sort of d- d- town or village or whatever, for whatever reason, you have to bring some sort of service with you. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, when I was living in, in Mali, a majority Muslim country um, and like villages are like vastly majority Muslim. And so I was living in like a 200 person village maybe. And uh, there was one Christian family in the whole village, and apart from being the only family that had pigs, um, they were also the only family that was brewing honey wine, uh, just in case you, you needed a, a little pick-me-up. They nice. were great. I was going to say, so did they offer a service that their Muslim brethren would have taken uh, part of? or, or I mean, was this, this the... is like on the sly, right? Like. this is it was not like advertised and they were not praised in the community for it but they were offering a gotcha a service that was taken advantage of yes essential services essential services (laughs) yes for all of the people in north carolina who keep asking (laughs) the state government why (laughs) liquor stores are considered an essential business they are stop asking Uh, it, it's it's kind of a similar point that we see in this story about for certain immigrant groups, the way they integrate into societies to do the one thing that the society for some custom or whatever mm-hmm, else can't mm-hmm. do. And the classic example we see for Jews in that regard is being moneylenders, yes. is that with yep. strict Christian rules about the subject of usury, someone had to step in to fill that inevitable void that the economy needed. Mm-hmm. Uh, same thing with respect to uh, merchants in the Jewish experience, where they were, uh, particularly in areas like Russia, uh, in a lot of Eastern Europe, they weren't allowed to own land. Um, that was strictly only allowed for Christians. And so they stepped in to fill, in, 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 in a need to find a living, they stepped into a different industry that was viewed as, you know, I'm going to say not kosher, but that's the exact opposite word <laughs> I want to go with there. Close uh, enough, it's fine. Yeah. Um, uh, and probably so also like some other things, like a high literacy rate being slightly useful if you want it to. Helps. Mm-hmm keep track of inventory and things like that mm-hmm. so due to those various cultural factors which you know literacy had various uh anti christianity had some issues with literacy in particular groups for a long time um well the jews were yeah. well equipped to step in to fill these voids and you can see that with a lot of immigrant groups when they come to certain areas mm-hmm. uh, and you i had not heard about honey wine being an example but that just sounds fun how is honey wine oh it's great have you never had it if you have i've never no, had honey you wine. have because you've had mead spencer Oh, yeah. that is honey yes, wine. Is. Now I'm thinking this yes. through. Okay. Also, I would highly recommend going to a good Ethiopian restaurant and mm-hmm. getting some honey mm-hmm. wine. Yes. I, I don't 
I don't. I do not believe I've ever been to an Ethiopian restaurant. Before. Oh That's boy, we're hundred percent need do to. that next time that you, we can leave where we are. Yes. Um, in, in the after times, <laughs> we will we will do so. Um, but no, the uh, the honey wine was an excellent supplement to the gin sachets that I bought. Nice. Mm-hmm. Well, well, another topic. <laughs> BJ, do you have anything else to discuss about Judaism, or should we uh, move on to the I, next? I, I think we should uh, move on. Okay. Well, another topic I found really interesting in this book and a lot of other fantasy settings is the uh, how magic is done. That if you look a lot of the classic fantasy books, there's there, there's often certain rules and certain tropes about how magic works. Is that it's either something you can go to a school and learn, or something that's inherently born in you and only you can develop due to use some unique blood, or it's only can be practiced by people that are inherently other and not something that uh, um, normal humans could ever be, be able to take part in. And this story really doesn't do it that way at all. Of where sort of. It, it, there's an, it seems like magic in this world is about individual accomplishment. That it's not really grounded in some, in some rote learning or anything else. It's about the accomplishment of the impossible and what that reflects upon you. And in that way, now, that is to, uh, consistent with what we... <laughs> What we were told we had to say about this story, which was that it is, it really is a fairy tale. Yes. Yeah. But magic here is, in a sense, the the ability to overcome and what that reflects in a person, what they gain from it. It's like, you know, from the hero's journey, the hero gains things over the course of accomplishing their impossible task. In this case, magic is almost a literal expression of what they've been gaining as a character. So, or gaining uh, in character. I would say that there are two magics in this fairy tale okay. this, this sure. book which is one one is the accomplishment and the other is the in the innate or the inherent because sure. like chernabog i wouldn't say is a magic of accomplishment per se now he's he is a magical being as the Staryak king they exist under their own separate rules but how they bleed into our society is kind of going back to the first option for how magic develops right and so we have two other examples of presumably somewhat innate magic that are uh, basically a compound at, and sort of a foil to the story. There's the, the magic of the accomplishment and then the magic of the innate. And mm-hmm. so we have um, the czar's mother mm-hmm. and Arena's mother. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, as basically the, the other uh, magic sources where the czar's mother basically implants Chernobog in, into the czar and, and basically his story unfolds because of this magical obstacle that, that is in her way. We have Arena's mother who um, basically because the fact that she was sort of Stark related and magical basically put a stumbling block in front of Irina because she doesn't have that magic. Mm-hmm. Nor and really did the mom either. It was... It, it, was he, I mean, the dad married her under the uh, knowing that she had that bloodline, but okay. wanting more of her than she really had. It was kind of a history rather than something that she really represented still. But same idea, same idea. Um, and then the last one, I guess a little bit more obvious, where Miriam has to overcome the magic in many ways of the Star King um, to, to accomplish her goals. Mm-hmm. And each of those kind of plays out differently. I think the book is—I think the book is rightfully a little bit judgy about the decisions made by the czar's mom, of where it was, she was essentially cheating, mm-hmm. that she was tapping into something that was not earned, was not any accomplishment on her part, and she was sacrificing someone else to bring it about. And the story 
pretty rapidly punches her off camera for the issue. Yeah, yeah the, as well the, as you the know, last murder. step is that you, she really couldn't control it, right? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think you could also say that we have a story of essentially a deal with the devil, mm-hmm. a deal with nature, and then a sort of a deal with God mm-hmm. or heaven or whatever, where uh, Arena basically has to deal with the devil, Miriam has to deal with nature, and uh, to a certain extent, and it, it's a little bit more reachy, but. Um, I want to say Helga, and that's not right. <laughs> Wanda. 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 Um, Helga Helga's the captures, visual, though, yes. captures the spirit. Yeah. Uh, um, but yeah, there's magic to there, too, with respect to that tree and her mm-hmm. mom. Yeah, and, and so, like, they each have to deal with, like, something different, and they have to overcome something different, but but we basically have sort of different realms of, like, what, what their per- want and pursuit is and how they accomplish it. Mm-hmm. And what tools and, they have to accomplish it as well. Right, yeah. they both, or they all three have been given with kind of different, or endowed with different abilities to deal with the specific tasks that they are put forth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the, the politics do, deals with the devil. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's interesting too to use Arena and uh, Miriam as you know the, the mirror, the mirroring characters they often serve in the story is that um, Arena's magic is indeed integral to her. It's something she's born with that she has no real knowledge of until she's given these magical artifacts that in some way unlock it in her. But nothing really good comes to her as a result of this. Uh, it l- enables her to play certain roles in the story, but the immediate effect is, is it puts her in the target sites of a demon that wants to consume her for this magic. Yeah. It's not... It's... The fact that it gives her something that unlocks something that makes it immediately radiating beautiful to the world is a threat to her. Whereas by comparison, it's not magic for Miriam that, you know, puts her in the targets of this Staryat King. It's pure human audacity and hubris. And it's a result of her successfully overcoming the trial for her hubris that she starts to develop magic and tapping into her world. So she's coming into it from a very opposite perspective, but in some ways they're ending up at a more similar point once they're eventually able to uh, master what their respective demons are. Yeah, I think... I think the other, I wouldn't say issue per se that I have with this story, but qualm, is that Wanda just sort of is. Like, she has a nice story. Mm-hmm. I think we've said before that's Steppen's fault. Uh, sure, but, like, I, I guess her her resolution is in the first third of the book, maybe yeah. even the first quarter. Yeah. Like, her resolution is these people accept me and I accept them and want to help them and essentially be a part of the family and that ends mm-hmm. in the first third yeah no she i mean yeah. she has a buildings roman um where she is sort of on her own journey of learning and accomplishment right to become a, a person in the world but i think to your point to your point spencer i do think that that would have been different if she had been allowed to be the character who actually had this sort of a deep resonating magical connection with the mother's tree mm-hmm. yeah or even or even if she just gotten to spend more time with the uh, miriam's family that as you guys said about a third 40 percent in her development of where she's developed skills she's developed knowledge she's really taken over from miriam and is running their business mm-hmm. she's caring for the family she's building her own life then she and her siblings kill their dad accidentally but he dies and from that point on they kind of have to exile themselves from the life that they were developing, and they never really find it again, at least not independently. 
it's only really as a supportive character to other people's stories thereafter. And that's a shame. It's part of the re- I really liked Wanda as a character, really enjoyed her first half of the book, but after it, we instead get her and Sergei hanging out while Stepan provides our main kind of insight into the other characters again. And that's not as interesting. And it leaves her at a very rough point of where we talked about where characters end up. She even ends this story in just kind of being a supportive role that's never found her own feet. She's happy enough with her state, but she never really got a chance to have her own completed arc beyond where she what she accomplished in the first third. And she has a go ahead, BJ. Sorry, I was going to say a two third of the book denouement, which is a weird, (laughs) not ideal. Yeah, Um, she she also like the where she ends up and the the place of of being able to be with her siblings and have. this house and kind of run their own own farm and and cottage industry and all of that it really continues to strike me as odd that even that is sort of by the grace of arena and the czar Mm -hmm. it's not to do with any of her own actions no and it's not well she did sort of manhandle the lord of the stark yeah, she was strong, but that's the exact trait that everyone assumed about her at the beginning of the story that we then saw she was capable of being more than. Yeah, and, and I think it was disappointing because like, like, I think a much more reasonable and satisfying end would basically be her taking over and or like, you know, taking over uh, Miriam's father's business. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if she actually got that arc, that would be really interesting because Miriam's not there to do it. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. It's something that they've been very much setting up because how easily mm-hmm. they, she even talks about when we still have her as a, you know a, a point of view character how easily she transitioned into Miriam's shoes, where no one even realized she was doing it, of how everyone just kind of assumed she was dumb as an ox, but how smart they all realized that she is and capable of doing. Now, in some ways, she's more effective than Miriam in actually doing the job because she isn't Jewish, and so no one's judging her with from that perspective. Um, so it's a shame that she just kind of ends up really accomplishing something she never set out to do. That so much of the first part of the story was about her finding her own character, developing, learning magic. Uh, and then thereafter, it suddenly becomes a bit of a family tale, which there were hints of that before, but it it's a shame that we lose her independent growth in accomplishing that. Yeah, I, I think it might kind of go along with sort of everybody gets a little bit of a happy happily ever after, and mm-hmm. those are never satisfying particularly when you divide them up in some, into so many separate chunks by the end mm-hmm. yeah um and I, I think you have a little bit of that with uh the czar and arena where like she does succeed somewhat with her political prowess which is presumably like what her accomplishments are but then we sort of end up with a and they're there like I don't know. Again, like I think there there are more satisfying ways to end it that I think really helps define this book as a fairy tale as opposed to more of like a fantasy story. Well, it's interesting too. That a fairy tale is pretty much always told from one perspective. That if, uh, I, I was I was thinking back on it, but pretty much all fairy tales don't really involve branching character arcs of several different people. At least not that I could think of offhand. Mm-hmm. They're much more focused on a single character and their journey and. The end of the story, if we're really framing this being a fairy tale, kind of clarifies that, no, all of this was really just Miriam's story. Everybody else was just kind of around to provide flavor text, but she was the mm-hmm. one that was really the focal point all along. Yeah, and no, that is interesting because, you know, when 
all of these sort of like fairy tale retellings come out and when they are particularly popular it is usually a moving from well so it's it's retaining the sort of like a one person perspective right um that fairy tales mm-hmm. do but it's moving from the kind of mythic folkloric voice that fairy tales are told in into usually a first person perspective well we have a whole bunch mm-hmm. of first person person's perspectives here but that does end up diluting the power of the sort of individual story arc right. yeah and and I, I feel like in some ways the author i would keep returning to this but the author got around that issue early mm-hmm. on by having the three perspectives be so mirroring yeah, each other they were so it didn't feel like necessarily that it felt like in some ways they were all just complements of the same story that was going forward and really proceeding in lockstep with each other. And that that works. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting way of doing it. Whereas, you know, not necessarily where we ended up by the come to the end. Um, I mean, discussing the ending, we, we kind of... We, we, we were getting late when we got to the ending last time around. <laughs> we really wanted to get into rewriting the story. But do you guys find the ultimate conclusion... And let's just say Miriam's story, just to focus on the, the main one here. Do you find the ultimate conclusion of her story satisfying? Or, actually, let's do the two. Sadly, writing out Wandex, the author kind of does too. But for <laughs> Arena and Miriam, the two of them end their stories on kind of a similar point. Of where they both defeated the demon, and they've effectively married the non-demon that they've decided is the other component of the, per- of the person they've been with. Mm-hmm. And for the two of them, this is... You know, viewed by the story as a satisfying, well, satisfying conclusion. Uh, was it for you guys too, or is there some aspects of it you didn't like? So I'm, I'm detecting, particularly from BJ here, a little bit of dislike. So I think it was fine. Yeah. <laughs> like I, you know, I have qualms sort of in either direction, but I, I like I don't, I don't know that that there's something else that I wanted. I think it was. You wanted this, but better. <laughs> Kind of. I mean, but, like, the other side of it is, like, I I don't think that there's a good way to end this story um, with with these type of endings. Mm -hmm. Or or how I like to to read books like this. I think that there are things where, you know, you sort of tie up loose ends, and you've tied up the loose ends kind of once Miriam goes back to save her the people that she's decided to adopt and arena has taken care of the demon and we're going to ignore wanda um but once you go after that i think you either need to go farther or Mm -hmm. or stop at at the end that that is interesting yeah right um and i think that this was a middle ground that hmm, yeah when you when you're, in re- when you're redoing fairy tales, it makes for an awkward thing when it comes to endings. Because usually for fairy tales that I remember growing up, the ending is the weakest part. The ending is just, and the story's done, and they lived happily mm-hmm. ever after. It, it's really brushing aside most of what you would find interesting. There's never an epilogue when it comes to a classic fairy tale story. There's never really a description of where everybody ends up. It's just kind of, and they got married, or they found a happy place, and story's mm-hmm. done. We have finished our view into this. That does not necessarily work outside of the fairy tale setting. It often would come across in most other mediums as being a rather dissatisfying conclusion to a story unless you're doing a short story. Mm-hmm. And this is actually where I 
have some sympathy for some of the outrageous one-star reviews that I have been reading over the course of this who are ups that are upset about this not being a sort of like more romancy novel like apparently some of mm -hmm. uh, Naomi Novik's other other works are because like what that does is it gives you the actual human connection when <laughs> What it does when it does is done correctly is it gives you the kind of human connection between the characters that are kind of ending up together at the end, right? Mm -hmm. And I feel like, you know, we are in this conversation, we're focusing on Miriam and Irina and kind of where they end up. And I am much more convinced. I am much more convinced with where Irina ends up than Miriam. Yeah. And um. it's it, it happens for a couple of reasons for me anyway. Um, the Star at King was never actually humanized. No, Miriam thought I, I, about, started to think about him differently, and other members of the Star at Kingdom were humanized to, to some degree, but he wasn't. And so their relationship and their like continued relationship doesn't really make any sense to me. But we did have moments between Arena and the Czar where she was like, oh, wait, you are actually kind of interesting when you don't have a demon in you. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. I think part of the issue there, too, is just where those moments occur structurally in the yes. story. Of where, with uh, Arena, the developing, the humanizing of the Tsar occurs over a pretty broad chunk of the middle part mm -hmm. of the book. Of where she first sees him through the mirror, she starts to see that he is, in many ways, a, a child that has been abused since the day he was born. Uh, she starts to be able to have honest conversations with him when she starts to do the brokering thing. And she also starts to see his own fears, weaknesses, everything else when she steps into power. He also, he, uh, on, just to throw in, he also hmm? has hobbies. He's an artist. A very <laughs> skilled one, yeah, too. Which, I mean, we are in lockdown quarantine times. Like, if you don't have hobbies, you're not really a person at this point. I mean, but but a really endearing hobby of drawing you and being like... <laughs> Why do you think that this person's attractive? I don't get it. Right. It's Why do you think I, my wife is at all attractive? It makes no sense. Justify Look this to this. me right now. Look at this. It's quirky. <laughs> I have the power of life and death over you. Tell me why my wife is not hot. <laughs> Uh, but it, it also even works from more the structure of a classic romance is that they've got a childhood connection too. Mm -hmm. Of mm -hmm. where they knew each other with respect to squirrel murder back when they were kids. Yes. Uh, it's an it's that's where they start is squirrel murder uh, and also squirrel defense, which that works. Yeah, that is like the by comparison you need a little bit more Redwall than I expected in this podcast. But okay. oh my god, can we read uh, Redwall? <laughs> <laughs> oh man, we can we can do all of those uh, tiny cute oh, animal murder stories please. if we wanted to. Watership down, Redwall, we got them all covered. Um, but by comparison, we see the Stariot King at almost the same point structurally in the story, maybe even a little bit earlier. Um, of where, you know, he jump, first appears in Arena's life, even though it's happening at the same point in time that we are, rather, in, rather than in the past. But we don't really get any aspect of character development out of him, other than that, you know, not necessarily good things that she would like about him, and that he intends to murder her. He is a rules lawyer. She has, he's utterly disdains her existence. None of these are good things. The first really positive thing we really learned about him is his sense of if, how his sense of personal honor bleeds into protecting his own people and that's happening in the just non-stop rush of words that's like the last 30 or 40 pages of this book yeah well it's a little bit further out than that but i i agree it's not a lot um we do see a little bit of humanity during his capture and and that was not as far towards the end as as i remember as as you know the last 30 40 pages but i, I, I do agree with you 
to, me, to be fair, I'm saying last 30 or 40 pages, it could have been 100. They're just going so damn mm-hmm. fast by the, yeah. by the end of this. You know, the it, last three chapters that have the entire story. Um, it, it, it's, it's one of those things of where I, I think the, when we start to humanize him is once Miriam accomplishes her last objective, her last goal, her last try, mm-hmm. is that once she does the impossible task of filling out those rooms, from that point on, he really starts to treat her as a person. And yeah. that's, uh, that's least relationship building. Yeah, right. but he still doesn't have a personality. Yeah. No. His personality is starting to treat her as a person, and that's... <laughs> Real high bar we're setting the... there. Yeah. That, that's, that's an, respect is an important part of a relationship. It doesn't necessarily give you much hope if you're not bringing anything else to the table, but it's a start. I mean, but this is the olden times. They, they didn't need much to establish relationships. That is fair. Uh, we are. I mean, if we were to put this book in our real world in terms of a setting, what would you say? Like fifteen fifty six that that kind of period, late medieval ages, early modern era kind of thing. I guess like seventeen sixteen seventeen. Yeah, okay. I I but, would say a, a little later in the sort of seventeen hundreds, but you know, it's still a period of where, from uh, from perspective of a woman in that era, they both end up pretty good. It could have been worse. It's like Arena lamenting in the early part of the story is that. The various options she has in life are nunnery or married to somebody who's hopefully not horrible. By comparison, they both end up pretty good. Maybe. Yeah. We don't really see anything of the actual courtship between... Actually, it's true. The aspect of the courtship that we kind of see indirectly with respect to Arena and the Tsar, we get kind of just hand-waved in about a sentence of what terms Miriam's Mar- setting on the uh, Star King. Yeah. I mean, so I think that... A more satisfying ending to me would have been basically him figuring out like he should court her and being like, well, spring is here, so I'll see you next winter. Yeah, that would have been better. Actually, that probably would have been a better just sort of ending, Hmm. right? Overall is like, you know, it's going to happen, but you don't have to have this sort of like nonsense of (laughs) it actually happening. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, because that felt very forced. Sure, and you could have even still worked in the name thing right there. It's just part of his commitment to this process. Mm-hmm. She makes him term of, he, of her of him giving her mm-hmm. name, uh, giving her his name. I, I, actually, that's a really interesting call, BJ. I, I think I would have found that a much more satisfying ending if it ends in a kind of direction rather than just a, a final point. Yeah, I agree. Um, and I, I think that you could have done similar things with Wanda and, and Miriam's family rather than like you know, in, instead of having a we're going to homestead, having them get the uh, letter of, of absolution, and then you know, a, I think a great ending would be, you know, Wanda takes out her book of accounts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or Wanda's the one that goes forward with that plan Miriam had for selling various trade goods with the grandfather. I would have loved if Wanda and the grandfather had a conversation between the two. Oh, that would have been interesting, yeah. Uh, uh, but yeah, that would have been a very satisfying conclusion to her arc, is, you know, she's wielding magic the same way the other two have, but her magic is the mathematics that she's learned for herself over the course of the mm-hmm. story. But we don't get that, which is a shame. It is. Yeah. I mean, I think that, e- like, a, a, an entertaining and satisfying ending for each of them would be to use the magic that they have within themselves and have learned and so like miriam has a little bit of her you know changing silver into gold or or something along those lines um arena has the politics that that she had all along that was so important Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and so i like i don't know how they you know the 
the meat of the book would have had to change but like the her organizing weddings and setting up uh marriage alliances mm-hmm. i think is her conclusion mm-hmm. yeah and it's Between- just sort of a shame that it happened before like the czar is no longer a devil yeah because she was at like actively <laughs> showing this acumen well before the end of this yeah she had another um sort of narrative arc that really petered out yeah two-thirds it, it, of the way it, through. effectively kind of and again, it kind of peters out just because Miriam's isn't done and she needs to keep on playing yeah. a role. So she gets another arc of, de- of defeating the demon to save her people of her kingdom thereafter, which is, I guess, in some ways kind of repetitive from what she already accomplished. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like, it would have been great if Arena had uh, a little bit more in the way of uh, human world issue to solve. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Because... <laughs> Yeah, her, her human her human world issue is winter, and that just kind of disappears in almost comic fashion once everything once the Starry King is wrapped up. Yeah, and and so like I would say, Wanda is sort of the representation of the human world. Miriam's the representation of the Stark world, and Arena is sort of supposed to be both, but she doesn't have an issue to solve within both. She just has the one. Yeah, she just mm-hmm. sends her so, issue to the Stark yeah. world. Like, <laughs> so, you know, if we're going to Monday uh, morning quarterback this uh, fully, mm-hmm. I would say that having some issue that ar- arose from the marriage that she proposed, basically shoring up what would happen if she had the czar murdered, and then having to resolve that and, like, shore up his power once the demon was exercised mm-hmm. would have been, like, the ending that she needed because that that's her power it would have been but it'd be a hard you'd have you would have to in some ways change aspects of the other characters arcs um because that would be so it, i mean i suppose you could say it's the mirror opposite of where miriam ends up of where they've defeated their demon one's marrying him the other one's literally killed the czar along with him but no i, I don't I, I don't think killing the czar i think the she's destabilized the czar's power because uh, because essentially she has created power for her family to take over gotcha anyway huh. I like you know i don't know the perfect way to do it but again like as we've discussed like wanda had her story then it ended too soon and then is sort of in resolution forever and it's a little unsatisfying but i feel like arena never got an appropriate resolution I think that's true mm-hmm. yeah well to challenge our fundamental conceptions one thing i've seen and just asking various people i know that have read the book what they thought is that uh, apparently a lot of people really liked Stepan. Yeah, tell us about it. Apparently, uh, the people that I've talked to that enjoy them, and I will keep the name secret to protect the innocent, uh, uh, really found Stepan's character eminently sympathetic in the same way that they kind of like an Oliver Twist character, of where they saw him as being innocent, saw saw his perspective as being uh, refreshingly different, and saw his ultimate arc as being satisfying in the sense that innocent isn't innocence isn't destroyed in this world, and it finds a happy conclusion. Uh, now, I, don't, I think it's fair to say that none of us really had many of those thoughts with respect to this character, its, its role in the story. But what do you think about that idea? Um, I think that the other reader's perspective that I could easily and reasonably get uh, from my mother, who I 100% know has already read this, my guess, her, her response would be, 
Oh, those were boring. I skimmed those that those parts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I okay. think that the like the conclusions of what is successful about Stefan as a character in this novel, I agree with. I just don't need him telling me any of it. Yeah, it's, it seems like our main criticism of Stepan aren't necessarily towards the character, even though I think we're doing that to a little bit too, yeah. but it's mostly just structural. We don't think that... We don't necessarily dislike him, we just don't think he should exist, if that comes across any Well, better. certainly I have no interest in reading a single sentence more of his voice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I, I think that the reason that Stepan has... Uh, a voice here and it is sympathetic to some people is because Wanda doesn't. Yeah. That, okay. Mm-hmm. That, that could be, that's an interesting mm-hmm. point. Cause that could be just a testament to the strength of the Wanda character that even pulled out of her and put into a different person. It still resonates well. Yeah, I think, I think that's true. Um, but as you know, as we talked about in our, a little bit of our like rewriting section that we did, I think a lot of the things that are actually, that continue to be sympathetic about Stepan, Wanda could have taken those characteristics. Yeah. Uh, because she still really yeah. does come out relatively innocent. Uh, I mean, I think she comes across as mu- much more sympathetic in some ways than either Arena mm-hmm. and uh, Miriam, who can both come across as being very harsh and almost cutthroat characters at different points in a way that Wanda never no. is. Um, but I think that some of the power of her character was, it, it was diluted by having Stepan as a point of view character. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I also think it sort of depends on what, how you feel about her being part of the money lending business. Sure. Because if you f- think that that is a souring of her character and, and she's, you know, forcing these destitute people to cough up the money that they owe, then, then Stepan is like you know he just plays with goats and has nothing useful in the world that he does um and so like he is sort of the perfect ingenue that's certainly that's true he is unsullied by any of it but i don't know it feels like a little bit of a misdirection and and to keep him that unsullied he at times has to actively avoid giving us perspective on the plot which you know i think I still deem it unforgivable that he's hiding under people's skirts and up in his room during the course of that entire wedding. Um, so, yeah, he stayed innocent by not participating. <laughs> he's baby Groot, but not as entertaining. <laughs> well, do we have anything else we want to address? We're kind of nearing our hour point. Uh, do we want to bid adieu to Spinning Silver and move on to other areas? Yeah, the last thing that I want to say about Spinning Silver, and this is d- d- very quick, and it is absolutely a wrapping up point, is that I really enjoyed reading this book i think that we have spent mm-hmm. too many weeks talking about it because this episode has been relatively negative about the book but i think we and all actually enjoyed reading this book no absolutely <laughs> and i think that's kind of inevitably what you run into a, in a wrapping up segment is that you can only just you know gush over things for so uh-huh. long which we really did for most of the recap um there are aspects and I, and i think we're coming to this from a perspective of we really enjoyed this it could have been yes. better And here's our thoughts on how we could have enjoyed it even more. I I think that sort of part and parcel to it being a fairy tale where it, it, to a large extent, was what it set out to be. And, and, you know, endings are not a strong point of a fairy tale because that's sort of not the point. Mm -hmm. And we're judging it by different standards. Yes. So what are we doing next? Well, uh, the two of you recommended a story that I don't know much of anything about, but I think we're all interested enough to give it a try. 
BJ, what is the name of that story? Uh, are you talking about the book The Water Dancer? I am talking about the book The Water Dancer, which we'll hopefully be getting to in two or three weeks. Yes, um, and then in the meantime, we'll come up with some short stories. Um, and Sarah, you pronounce the name in a way that the only other person that I've ever heard say it, which is who is my mother, and I don't trust her pronunciations of random things. Um, so I'm going to leave the author's name up to you. <laughs> so I think we are going to do The Water Dancer by Ta-Nehisi Coates. Um, and then some short stories in between that, that we'll make decisions on and post on our website or my Facebook or some conglomeration of the two. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe... Go ahead, Spencer. Go ahead. I believe we're also pondering doing a bit of a drunk cast on the subject of a Harry Potter escape room, too, for pottering around. Or is it an addition to even a pawn pottering around? The, yeah, that's our bonus content for our bonus content so <laughs> it's just turtles i think it would be it's fun turtles all the way down at a certain point we do things that we think are fun and you guys are just along for the ride we're gonna have a blast either way um if our listeners would like to be along for the ride on the backs of these turtles elsewhere bj where else might they go <laughs> um you can find all of our content um including an in-depth dive to the uh Disney offering of Star Wars The Mandalorian on uh, MegumTalks.com where you can find MegumTalks TV, Whiskey on the Weekend, uh, our very own uh, Megum Reads, as well as our podcast within a podcast, uh, Pottering Around. And if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions of things that we should read, do, watch, or uh, fill up our time (laughs) because we need it, you can click contact us at the upper right hand side of uh, the website and we read all of the content, the comments and suggestions that you make. Yeah, and with yeah. that. Yeah, we've got a few weeks of uh, very interesting material in front of us to uh, keep our otherwise locked in states busy. But I'm looking forward to doing it with y'all. And until then, have a good night. Bye. Bye.